Welcome to the RYR Endurance Team Podcast. We are grateful that you've chosen to tune in and listen. If you are a runner, aspiring runner, triathlete, or aspiring triathlete, you are in the right place. We love sharing what we know about these sports. If you like what you hear, you can always learn more by contacting us at ryrcoach at gmail.com or by visiting our website, ryrenduranceteam.com. Hey, if you enjoy our podcast, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. This helps others find us. Thanks for listening. Bethany, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Coach Paula, mom, has been under the weather this week. So, thanks for joining me, kicking off this podcast. Happy to help. We often start off talking about our training. Tell us about your training this week. Well, I made it to the pool three days this week. I've been swimming before work on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays because I have a lingering injury keeping me from running. So I'm happy to be able to get in the pool, but ready to get back out on the pavement. Have you been seeing some improvements in your swim time? Yeah, I've been doing the same swim for several months now. It's just easier for me to do the same swim every time so I don't have to remember what to do. So I just do the same distance every time, but some days I feel like I'm putting in the same effort and my time is faster, and some days I'm just not as fast, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, you just never know how your body's going to react from one day to, to another in the pool. So my week of training, I have been focused on running and start off the week with a potential injury. And it seems like I have a new potential injury about every other week. But this one was a pain on the top of my foot and I was worried about it. And so I scheduled a PT appointment. I got on the calendar to see the physical therapist and I have gotten in the habit of texting my physical therapist what's going on so that he'll be prepared when I get there. And to my surprise, he offered some suggestions via text, which was different ways to lace my shoes. Very interesting. Did you know there were at least a dozen different ways to tie your shoes? I did not. Well, we're going to be sharing that in our team note this week. I'll be looking forward to it. Yeah. So I have changed the way I am tying my shoes, lacing my shoes on the right foot, and I did not miss a training opportunity this week. So praise the Lord for that. Absolutely. Speaking of praising the Lord, we were in prayer yesterday for one of our athletes, Jessica Jones, who is doing the St. Jude Marathon, a race for a great cause. And she had been dealing with some injuries of her own, but we were tracking her. She said she was going to have her phone with her, and so she would be able to receive texts along the way. So we were texting her throughout the race, offering encouragement, but she made it, and it was very close to her personal best. That's so, good. Great job, Jessica, if you're listening to this. Congratulations. Some other things in the news this week. On Saturday, Clash Daytona took place down at the Daytona Motor Speedway, and Christian Blumenfeld was the victor again. So he has really become the dominant athlete in triathlon. I'm anxious to see him go head-to-head against Jan Ferdino at some point. So he is the Ironman world record holder. He's the Olympic gold medalist, and he won again yesterday. So he is on a roll. It's incredible. 
Something else that's pretty incredible is the world record times for the half marathon just keep getting faster. Uganda's Jacob Kiplimo broke the record a couple weeks ago now, bringing the time down to 57 minutes and 31 seconds. That is just crazy fast. About a month and a half ago, a lady with the last name of Giddy from Ethiopia set the world record on the lady side at an hour, two minutes, and 52 seconds. The half marathon times are just getting crazy fast. So, Bethy, when do you think it's going to be a natural occurrence on the men's side for marathon winners to break two hours? It's definitely right around the corner. The faster the shoes and all the technology and just people getting their minds wrapped around, well, if they can do it, then I can do it, and anything's possible. Exactly, and we used to think that nobody could break the four-minute mile, and then one person did, and then everybody realized it was possible, and then a lot of people had broken the four-minute mile and broken it by quite a lot. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking with Lee Anderson. He is going to tell us a little bit about his running history and his adventure at the Moab 240-mile race. What do you think about somebody trying to run 240 miles? Well, I had the opportunity to listen, and Lee was definitely nervous about the race to begin with. He had normal reactions that I have, like just thinking that it's crazy, and the conditions, and the distance is just hard to wrap your mind around. It's not something I would ever be interested in, especially not right now. I hope that you are never interested in doing something like that. But, um, yeah, no thank you. (laughs) I'm going to choose not to comment on that (laughs) at this time. I'm leaving the door open. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was certainly an eye-opening experience, and it was a really good interview. We'll bring Lee on to the podcast. Welcome, Lee. Lee, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad you were able to spare some time to tell us about yourself and we'll eventually get to the Moab 240. But let's start off with, uh, when did you become a runner and was there someone in particular that inspired you to run? No, I started when I was about uh, 14 years old and what uh, I guess inspired me to run was I didn't know how to do anything else. I didn't know how to play basketball, didn't know how to play baseball or football. And actually the school I was going to at the time had one sport and it was basketball. Rumor had it, they were going to have a cross country team because they had one the year before. So I thought, well, surely I can run. I mean, anybody can run. You just put one foot in front of the other and keep going. So I started training during the summer and was going to try to make the cross country team. And once school started, they decided not to have one, but I kept running anyway. And then the next year, all of our little schools consolidated into a big school, county school. And they did have a cross country and a track team and still didn't know how to play any other sports. So I decided to keep running and been running ever since. Yeah. So you started at a pretty young age, just just Mm -hmm. like me. I started in school and it's been a, a lifetime hobby. Well, and that's one thing I try to when I'm talking to people about exercise that Running is one of the easiest ones, if you're physically able to do it, running is one of the easiest ones to maintain because you can do it anytime, any place, night, day, anywhere you are. All you need is a decent pair of running shoes and and just 
head out the door and take off. And whereas a lot of sports, you need to have somebody participate with you or you got to have a place that you go to to set it up. And those are great exercise and great sports, but they're just harder to maintain, especially, you know, when kids come into your life and then when you get older and you don't have the time or, you know, want to set aside the time to go play some of the other sports. So that's why I advocate running so much to people. Plus, I love to run. I'm, uh, ever since I started, I've loved to run. And so that's what keeps me going as well. Yeah. And I love to run as well. And so does Paula. And I'm so glad that uh, I got started at a young age. Paula started much later than I did, but she has uh, grown to love it mm-hmm. as much as I did. Yeah, Suzanne came to it late because all her running in high school was training or punishment, you know, for basketball and softball. And, you know, you're going to play softball, you got to go run. You're going to play basketball, you got to go run. <laughs> so she just didn't like running. She didn't like it at all. And I tried for years to get her to start and with no success. And then a friend of ours got her started walking and they started running. And now she's uh, as into it as I am. I mean, she runs and she's actually faster than me, which is good for her. Yeah, it, isn't it great to have a spouse that is into the same hobby that you're into? Yes, it makes it a lot easier to maintain it. And you don't feel like you're taken away from them. As a matter of fact, we share it now. You know, it's just like this trip we just took this weekend down to Chattanooga. Part of that trip was we were going to run on the river walk down there and they've got a nice river walk that goes about 13 miles. So we ran on part of that. And, and then, you know, when we go, you know, to different locations, we always try to figure out well, where can we run or where are we going to run? So we share that now. So how did you decide to become a streak runner? When I went to the Boston Marathon, gosh, well, that was 31 years ago. There was a guy up there that had had a streak of 20 plus years and I actually went to his booth and, you know, he was there. I didn't, I didn't meet him per se, but he was at this booth and he was handing out information stuff. And he had been running at that time for over 20 years. And I thought, how can somebody run every day for 20 years? And so I started my first streak shortly after that. And, um, you know, first one probably lasted two or three months. And then for some reason or other, I couldn't continue it. And so I started again later. And um, my longest one was almost 15 years. I was about two weeks shy of 15 years. Wow. And I tried to set up a, a small enough distance, you know, two miles was my limit. You know, I had to do two miles that I could get that in, you know, every day in just about any condition. And uh, then I, I finally had to break that streak. And I've started a couple others since then. The last one I just had to break was about five years. So I'm getting ready to start another one the first of the year. (laughs) That's just an easy date to remember. So that's why I start a lot of them the first of the year, because then I know, okay, the first of the year, 2022, I started another streak. All right. So you got to get healthy so you can start your new streak in 2022. And it's, it gets to a point where it's not a question of if I'm going to run, it's where I'm going to run and when I'm going to run. So, you know, it just gets to where you just feel like you can't miss, you know, you know, I've gone this far. I, you know, there's no reason for me not to do it today. So I've ran in the middle of the night. I've ran, I forgot my shoes before and ran barefooted. And I remember running at Suzanne's parents one night uh, barefooted in the snow because I didn't have any running shoes with me. So I just went out there in my sock feet and ran my two miles. So was that better than wearing whatever shoes you wore out there? 
Yeah, street shoes just didn't, I didn't want to take a chance on, you know, hurting my ankles or something like that. I had my dress shoes because I was working down here at the time and we had not yet moved down here. So I was staying up there then. Just didn't think about bringing my running shoes. So what was your progression from marathon running into ultra marathons? Well, the first one I did, of course, back then, they didn't even call them ultra marathons. It was just called a 50 mile run. And I heard about it. I was at John's running store in Lexington. That was the big running store at the time in Lexington. And it's where all the runners hanging out. That's where you found out about all the races. And I was in there one day and John was talking about he was getting ready to do a 50 mile run. And the longest I'd ran at that point was a marathon. And I didn't even know people ran further than a marathon. I, you know, I thought the marathon was the longest anybody ran. And so I was asking him about it. And he said, yeah, one of the best things is the week before you get to eat anything you want to because you need to load up on calories. And uh, so I didn't do it that year. And but I decided the next year I was going to try to do that. And so I trained for it as best I knew how back then, which there wasn't a lot of training advice or information back then. You pretty much just winged it. And um, I was able to complete that when it was from Frankfurt to Louisville. And then the following year would be Louisville to Frankfurt. So they'd reverse it every year. And one of the funniest things I tell people is there wasn't age stations. You know, there, that was before age stations even existed. And so the night before I drove over the course and every five miles, I put out a Mountain Dew and a Milky Way. And I marked on the road where I put them. And so I knew every five miles I had something to drink and something to eat. Well, after about the third Milky Way and Mountain Dew, it didn't set well after that. So I got through three of them and there's probably still some Mountain Dews landing on the side of the road there somewhere because I would hide them behind bushes and trees and, and behind fence posts. And, but I got through that one and then um, I did that race probably three or four times. But like I said, it was just called a 50 mile run then. And then once I, I got to the point where I was pretty sure I wasn't going to ever PR a marathon again, you know, I, my times had slowed down and, you know, I got to the point where I just didn't feel like I was ever going to run any faster than I had already ran a marathon. I was looking for some different challenges and I thought, well, if I can't run faster, maybe I can run further. And then I got into ultra marathons after that again. My first one after that time was uh, up in Louisville. It's called Louisville Loving the Hills and it was a 50K, so 31 miles. And um, it was actually a trail run. So it was the first time I'd ever done a trail run, you know, since cross country in high school. And uh, that was different. Um, I actually got lost, first one. And I'm running out the road and this lady's coming the other direction. She says, hey, we're going the wrong way. We're going the wrong way. So we ended up running 33 miles. But uh, it was interesting. And, uh, you know, I've done several since then and just kept trying to see you know well how far can you go and then a friend of ours yours and mine dylan hammonds i did a 53 mile run on my 53rd birthday and dylan that's he says that inspired him to try to do a hundred miles i didn't know people ran hundred miles and he actually did it he went on saint on the other side of saint louis and did a hundred mile and so i thought well you know if he can do it maybe i can do it so that's when I signed up for my first 100 miler after that. And it was actually up in uh, Pekin, Illinois. And when I went to sign up for it, they had the option of a, a 50, 100, or 150. And I thought, well, you know, might as well do the 150. So I was able to complete that one. And then, you know, it's just something different. It's just a different thing to motivate you, to keep you going. Since I can't run, you know, faster, then maybe I can run further. And speed isn't nearly... A big deal in those it's just you're just surviving you're just trying to hang on to get to the finish line you did the 50 miler several times and then you jumped up to 150 yes 
and uh, I did a lot of research. You know, I, I read a lot. I like to to read and, and figure out, well, is this possible and why is it possible? And my, I guess my motivation has always been, well, if they can do it, then why can't I do it? There's no, you know, there, I don't have any physical injuries or anything to hold me back other than just, you know, trying to get the distance. And uh, so, I, you know, I just kept trying to go a little further or a little faster. And, and it's, you know, it's just been something else, you know, to get me out there and keep me running, keep me interested in it. And it opened up a different type of running, you know, with the trail running. It's just a different experience. And most of it good, but, you know, some of it challenging. Yeah. So moving on past the 150 miler, how did you decide on the Moab 240? Well, I had done, um, after that, I did uh, three other 100 mile races. I, I did the Indiana 100, which the shirt's for. And um, I did the uh, Tunnel Hill run twice. I did first time just to, you know, see if I could still run 100 miles. And then I did the second time. I just turned 60 and I wanted to see if I could break 24 hours. It's a very easy course. It's an old rail bed that's been turned into a, a running venue. And so I thought, well, if I'm ever going to do it, it's going to be on a course like that. So I was able to accomplish that. And it was like, okay, you've done 100, you've done 150. So what's next? And about three years ago, I think 2017 was the first year, I heard about the Moab 240. And you know, at first it was just overwhelming. You know, how can anybody run 240 miles? I'm pretty sure I can't run 240 miles, but I watched it and read about it and saw that there was people my age that were able to do it. And then, you know, they throw in the conditions, you know, you're running in the mountains and the desert and, and it could be freezing cold. It could be extremely hot. And I just couldn't talk myself into it for the first two or three years. And then finally I thought, well, you know, if you're ever going to try it, now's the time to try it. And uh, so last October, after watching it again, I decided if I got in, I was going to give it a try. So January 1st is when you have to enter. I was standing there with my finger on the button because it had been filling up quicker and quicker every year. And the year before it had filled up in like three weeks. So I pushed the button and got in and it actually filled up in an hour. Wow. So there are a lot thank of crazy goodness. people out there. Thank goodness I was ready to go. And then next year, they're actually even going to a lottery. So it's got to the point now where they're not even going to do the button anymore. You got to enter in a lottery. Mm-hmm. So it, I thought, you know, and once again, I did a lot of research. I looked at every video I could find about runners that had tried it. You know, a lot of people will run with uh, their phone and, and, and record some of the run. And there was a lot of pictures. There was a lot of uh, people talking about you know, how they did it and what they trained. And I looked at both the ones who finished it and the ones who didn't finish it, trying to figure out, okay, why didn't they finish it? And so I actually started training for it right after Moab last year and uh, knew that I would have to put in a lot of miles and effort to get there. And it was a lot more than I had even imagined, you know, to get to that point. So it just, it was just, Another challenge just to see if I could do it. Describe your training over that year period from October when you first decided until October of the race. Well, I started out just up in the mileage, up in my weekly mileage, you know, especially a longer run, trying to get a longer run in there. And also anticipating that you might have extreme cold because that's one of the possibilities out there. Um, I 
figured out what I needed to wear, you know, what I, what uh, to get to run in the cold, you know. I have, for some reason or another, my hands get extremely cold. So at times I wear three pairs of gloves. And then I even, someone got me for Christmas some heated gloves, which has helped. I, you know, I, I wear them occasionally. So I had to get used to running with a lot more clothes and gear on hats and gloves and coats and sweatpants and than I normally did. So that was that was a challenge just to get comfortable or somewhat comfortable with running in that. And then also you have to carry a backpack and the backpack can weigh anywhere from 15 to 20 pounds because you have to carry everything in there you would possibly need to survive. You know, if you got stuck out there, uh, you had to work, take a hat, gloves, coat, um, change of pants, change of shirt. You had to carry nutrition with you. So it was about 15 to 20 pounds. And so I started training with that and water of course the water is the heaviest part and you had to have at least two and a half liters of water and they suggested three and a half and so I got used to running with the backpack on and the water and that was I never got used to it you just get to the point where you you do it and especially like when I would start out on the run it was like this feels so terrible you know I've got this 15 pound pack on my back and I used to, I love to run in shorts and a t-shirt that's my favorite running years shorts and a t-shirt and so I got, after a couple of miles, it gets easier and you don't notice it as much. And, and so I finally got comfortable with that. But those were the two biggest things is trying to up my mileage, trying to run, you know, in the elements, whether it be cold or hot and running with that backpack, you know, that was the biggest challenges. And then trying to find heels in Owensboro is almost non-existence, you know, as far as the kind of heels that I knew I would encounter out there. You have to go looking for hills around here. So, you know, I did some Bratcher Hill runs and found some other places we could go. We found this good trail up in Indiana called the Knobstone Trail, which is a lot of up and down. And, and so I only trained up there about three times and I should have trained up there about 10 times, you know, thinking back about it. And, and but, uh, you know, it's a little different. You can't just drive up there and run 20 or 30 miles and drive home. It's, it's a two hour drive both ways. So. Yet I had to set aside a certain amount of time to do that. So that was the biggest challenges was trying to find a place to train and get used to the gear. Well, one thing that was impossible for you to train for around here was the elevation. Because mm -hmm. the elevation, if I remember right, from doing some research on Moab and then also being out there as part of your crew, which was a blast. Thank you. I mean, the elevation was 8,000, 9,000 feet at some parts of the course. Yeah, I think 8,600 is the highest we got up to this year. Sometimes it can go as high as 10,000, but this year they lowered it because they were expecting some bad weather. So we only got up to 86, well, you say only in 8,600 feet. That's still pretty high for me anyway, because you'd never encounter anything like that around here. And um, I, I did some studying on that too. And a lot of the people said, if you do heat, training it accomplishes the same thing which i did a lot of heat training this summer and it may have made me you know got me in better shape for it but it, the altitude definitely was a factor yeah yeah well let's walk through each of the legs of the race so the start was in moab utah mm -hmm. and the first leg was to hidden valley aid station 
and you started the race, I believe at 6 a.m. on a Friday morning. Yes. And it was 9.3 miles with about 1,200 feet of gain, and you arrived at the aid station at 8.10. Tell us a little bit about that first leg. Well, the, the weather was outstanding, you know, for the first day. I mean, I, it was probably, I think it was about 50 degrees and, you know, the, it was just great running weather and that was much better than I'd anticipated. So when we started out, you start out the first three miles, you're running actually on pavement. You're going through town, through the town of Moab, heading to the trails. And I felt great at that point in time. And I didn't want to get to the trails and then get in a Congo line to where everybody was waiting for everybody else. So I tried to pick up my pace so that, you know, I could get closer to the front and I wouldn't have to be waiting on people and passing people. So, and I felt good when I hit the trails after about three miles, but then of course reality hits you and you start climbing. And uh, it was like uphill, uphill, uphill for what seemed like the next three miles. And then it was up and down, up and down, up and down. And then finally back down to that aid station but I got through it okay. The thing I guess that bothered me the most is it seemed like a lot of people were passing. And of course, I did it to myself by trying to get out there in front of them. But I was okay with that. I was trying to run my own race. You know, I was, had a certain amount of pace and time that I wanted to try to maintain. But I got to that first aid station, felt pretty good. I actually had phone reception and called Suzanne and told her where I was and told her I was fine because I knew that wouldn't, phone reception wouldn't last very long. And tried to eat a little something, which has always been a struggle for me, you know, in these longer runs is actually eating. And then we start climbing again. And we went up this section that they called the Stairmaster or Stair Climber. And it's about two miles, just uphill, 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 uphill. And it's not just uphill. It's the terrain that you're running on. You're running on trails, first off, but you're climbing over rocks, a lot of that. So it's not even actually running. You're hiking and climbing and and it just seemed like it went on forever. But then once you get to the top of that climb, it opened up into a, uh, I guess, a meadow. And uh, we had about two miles where it was great running. It was flat. It was dirt track. Just great running. But that gets you, that's got me actually a little past Hidden Valley. I'm getting ahead of myself there. That's okay. So the after Hidden Valley was a Masa bike, which was about eight and a half more miles. And this section had 1600 feet of gain. Mm -hmm. And you arrived there about 1042 on Friday morning. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Which, well, which you may have already touched on that some. Yeah, we got through that one section that was real good running on the meadow. And we're coming out of the meadow and we were starting up this incline and we noticed several runners coming back the other direction. They said, you're going the wrong way, you're going the wrong way. I was just assuming that the people in front of us knew where they were going and wasn't paying as close attention to the markers as I should have. So we ended up going probably a mile out of the way. And then everybody started looking at their map at that point in time and figuring out where we were supposed to be. And we got back on track. Weather was still good. And then we got on what they call slick rock, which I'd never, you know, other than the few, the time before we'd been out MOMAB, I didn't really know what slick rock was, but it's basically you're running on rock. There's no dirt on it. It's just rock. And um, that was you're talking about I, like a, a really large, solid piece of rock, not yeah, like gravel. Yeah. yeah, that can go on for a half a mile. It's not like, you know, you just climb over it and you move on to dirt. It's You're running on this rock for sometimes a half mile plus at a time. And then the weather started to turn a little bit. It started out sprinkling 
course, the temperature dropped a little bit with that. And uh, we got to this one downhill section that was all slick rock, and it was at least a mile. It was downhill. It had been raining, so it had gotten very wet. So you're trying to be extra cautious that you don't slip and fall or trip or whatever. You know, you think downhill is a good thing, and most of the time it is. But when you're running downhill in the, on the slick rock and trying to be careful and not fall, it just it wasn't a fun part of the run. But that lasted about another mile, and then we come out on the gravel road, and that takes us about another three miles into a mass of the back. And I tried calling Suzanne when I get down on the road thinking, you know, I'm going to be early. I'm running a little faster pace than I thought I would. And uh, I wanted to make sure she knew I was going to be early and never could get her over. No phone reception at that point in time. But when I got to the aid station, she was standing there waiting on me. So not surprised. Yes. That was the first opportunity to see your crew. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that they were glad to see you. Well, it was just Suzanne at that time because we knew people were going to have to take turns and, you know, get some sleep when they could. And, and so um, she had me sit down, she got me water, she got me something to eat, made sure everything was okay. And then uh, I said, I was there probably about 15 or 20 minutes. And then I headed on out again. Um, The uh, conditions had gotten progressively worse as far as the trail conditions, you know, with the rain and everything. So you're, you know, you're, then you start to encounter the rocks and the mud and, but you know, at that point in time, I was still feeling great. Uh, You know, I had, I covered, uh, you know, 16 plus miles at that point in time and just felt fine. I just knew it was going to be tough, but you know, when I signed up for this, I knew it was going to be tough. It wasn't like I went into it thinking, well, this is going to be easy. I knew it was probably going to be the toughest thing I ever did in my life. And it was. And um, so we got to Manassas back and then I headed out from there to the next aid station. Yeah, so the next was the base camp, and that was another 15 miles away with 2,200 feet of gain, and you got there at 328 in the afternoon on Friday. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how long that was going to take because I'd never done that much climbing on top of what I'd already done. So it was started to, you know, accumulate, I call it accumulated fatigue, that it starts just wearing on you physically after a certain point in time. And, uh, you know, the fact that it was muddy and slick made it a little bit more challenging. But I still felt, you know, I was fine. I still felt like no problem. But my biggest fear going out there to begin with was the first 72 miles you have to run by yourself. And uh, my sense of direction is not very good. Uh, Thank goodness for you, because you set it up on the Guy app for me. I actually started using that app at that point in time. And it was perfect. I mean, I felt comfortable that I was not going to get lost because anytime I felt like I wasn't sure where the trail was, I could look down at that and there'd be a little arrow telling me that, yes, you're on the trail or no, you're not. And I could veer one way or another and get back on the trail. So that took away one of my biggest fears as far as getting lost. Uh, The next fear was, will I get lost when it gets dark? You know, then will I be able to keep going the right way? But that section went pretty good. It was still daylight, you know, at three o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, we're, all I can see in front of me is, is just wide open spaces. And we're up on top of this uh, plateau or mesa. I don't know which one they called that, but uh, one or the other. And uh, you can just see for miles and miles and miles and you don't see any civilization at all. You know, once you get through that aid station, there's nothing out there but wide open spaces. 
and you can see runners in front of you and you know runners are behind you so so that's that's you know your contact i guess with human beings but otherwise it's just beautiful wide open spaces and so that section went went okay it was a little tougher because there was more climbing on it tell me about the the aid stations along the way the like aid the, stations you know they they really they really talk them up and as far as aid stations go they are outstanding but a lot of the stuff they offered as far as to eat i don't eat anyway you know I, we don't eat meat so that eliminated a lot of the food right there and it sort of narrows down to what your choices and options are at the time plus by then my stomach was starting to you know do its usual irritation and, and nothing sounded good so i had to try to force you know some calories down to me so for the average runner the aid stations are probably the best they've had or ever encountered and the, the people that work them are very encouraging they're ready to help you anyway they'll change your shoes for you change your socks for you work on your feet if you have issues there so they're excellent in that respect i don't think i got as much out of them as i should have and could have because uh, it's just the way i my diet and the way my stomach works i didn't get enough uh, nourishment out of that but that's my own fault it's not the aid station's fault so moving on to the next stop that was the oasis and that was another 26 and a half miles away with another 2,000 feet of gain mm -hmm. and this is where it starts to get dark you arrived there at 1.19 a.m. on Saturday morning. Well, before we got to that, and the part that um, I probably skipped over there is there's this thing called, uh, you call it Jackson's Ladder that you go down. And it's the what you see in all the films of Moab. It's one of the things they highlight because it is so interesting looking. And it's basically uh, a zigzag back and forth down the side of this cliff. And the terrain is just, you know, you're just basically hoping you don't fall and uh, it's rocks and you're climbing here and there and everywhere. And, and I, I was trying to, to make sure that, you know, I was extra careful so that it didn't get hurt. And it's only about a mile down. So it's not that far, but it takes a long time to get there just because of the terrain. And I got almost all the way to the bottom and then tripped somehow and fell and rolled over and, you know, rode into a boulder. And fortunately, nothing broke. And I just had a little skin placed on the leg. So I got up and kept on going. And then the next part of the terrain, you know, it was still wet. And it was a long downhill, what looked like it was going to be a good place to run, looked like it was going to be a gravel road, but started to encounter the roads there have huge rocks on them. I mean, fist-sized rocks. That's what you're running on. So you're not running on crushed limestone like Tunnel Hill. And you're not even running on gravel. You're basically running on rocks. And it didn't bother me too much other than I couldn't get into a good rhythm and I couldn't run, you know, as fast as I thought I should be running at that point in time. But got through it. And um, that, there were some huge stones that looked like jade. I mean, as big as my fist, it looked like just a piece of jade out there. And I almost picked one up and I thought, well, I don't want to add any weight to my pack. It's already heavy up. But they were beautiful stones. And, and then it, you know, it's starting to get darker. And that's, you know, another one of my fears I had to overcome, not scared of the dark, but scared of tripping and falling, going the wrong way. So I caught up with some uh, fellow runners Felt confident they knew where they were going. And with my guy up, I knew where I was going. And, and for the most part, we were able to maneuver it without too much difficulty. There were a few times that 
I just felt like I, you know, do I go this way or this way? So I'd look at that app. It would point me in the right direction. And if I moved and it didn't say I was going the right direction, it was easy to correct. So that part went much better than I had feared it would, you know. And you're running through the night and, you know, you're encountering other runners. You're passing some. Some of them are passing you. And me and this one other runner, we just kept leapfrogging each other, you know. I would run for a while and I'd pass him and then I'd sit down and rest and he'd pass me. And, you know, we never even spoke to each other. We just kept leapfrogging each other for about two or three hours there. And then uh, finally got into that age station. And, uh, you know, I was getting pretty tired at that point in time. You know, I hadn't slept, you know, since uh, four o'clock the previous morning. So it was, you know, coming up on 20 some hours without any sleep. And so I was getting tired. But I didn't really, I didn't, I thought about trying to sleep in the aid station because you do have uh, mats and stuff that you can lay down on and it was just too noisy, you know, and and I thought, I'm not going to be able to sleep here. So I just kept going and I got to the point where I was, I call it zombie running. It's like, you know, I'm I'm veering back and forth on the road and, and I can't focus on the running part of it. It's like, almost like you wake up and you realize, you know, you've been running. And I thought, well, I'm going to try one of those trail naps. I've heard about these trail naps where you just basically, you lay down on the side of the trail and you take a nap. So I set my watch for 30 minutes and I went over to the side of the road and curled up and lay down and took a nap and it worked. You know, it woke me up in 30 minutes and I felt refreshed and and ready to go again. So (laughs) trail naps work. I bet that was an experience being out there in the wide open spaces. It was probably cool at that time and not really knowing what kind of animals might be around. (laughs) Well, and that was a concern when I laid down. I thought, you know, maybe it's too late in the year to worry about snakes and rodents and whatever else might be out here. And fortunately, I never encountered any. So, but it does go through your mind, you know, especially if you're getting ready to go to sleep and you're thinking, is this okay to be doing this or not? And, but it turned out it was fine. I mean, I didn't, I saw a couple of rodents and stuff, but none of them that bothered me. Well, the next stop was Indian Creek, which was about 12 miles away and another 1,700 feet of gain. And you made it through the night. You, you got there around 7.30 a.m. on Saturday morning. And this is when you were with your crew and you got to take a pretty good nap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that section, uh, once the sun came up, you know, that's sort of like you, you always get a boost when the sun comes up, you know, you've made it through that. And, you know, that was probably the longest I had ever ran, you know, uh, even when I did the 150, I don't, it, no, I would, I, I did fit that in 51 hours. So I hadn't, I had ran, you know, longer time-wise, but not longer time-wise without sleep, you know, than that 30 minute nap. And once the sun came up, it's like you get a boost. And also I knew I was getting close to that aid station, which the crew was going to be there. So that was my first encounter with more of the crew. My daughter and her boyfriend were there and uh, Suzanne was there, of course. And I, I just like, I got a boost and I'm running and I'm passing people. And, and you know, I'm trying to pass these couple of young guys and feeling good and everything. Well, uh, I think God decided to humble me. So I tripped and fell and did a complete roll again. And I rolled over and came right back up on my feet and said, nothing hurt but my pride and just kept on going. Once I got to where I could actually see the aid station, I was up pretty high at that time and the aid station was down low. 
but it was downhill and it was on uh, a dusty gravel road. So it was good terrain to run on. So, and I knew I was going to get to sleep too. So that gave me an additional boost. And, you know, I ran into that aid station and they had everything set up. They tried to get me to eat, tried to get me to drink, changed my shoes, my socks, and uh, made me climb up in the back of the vehicle to sleep, which they didn't have to work very hard to make me do that. I mean, I was ready. I crawled up in there and, and went to sleep. I don't know. I think it may have been two hours or something like that, but it seemed like 10 minutes, you know, that they woke me up and said, okay, it's time to go. But I was still feeling good at that point in time. Plus I knew Suzanne was going to be doing the next section with me. So I was sort of looking forward to getting going again. And I thought, well, I made it through one day and one night. So let's go for number two. Yeah. So your break at that aid station was just a little over three hours. So yeah. So yeah, you tell me you did not seem like three hours. <laughs> no, well, there, there's a lot that goes on at an aid station besides sleep. You know, changing clothes, changing shoes, getting your nutrition, going to the bathroom, all the things. But yeah, you finally got a little bit of sleep. But I wanted to back up just a bit. So at this point, you've fallen twice mm-hmm. and you fell once in training and preparation and were injured mm-hmm. how was your was it your collarbone or your shoulder my shoulder yeah on the knobstone trail i was training up there and i uh, was heading downhill and uh, i guess i wasn't being cautious enough and i did not have my poles with me which i should have they would would have probably prevented that and um, just caught my toe and went down and you know you throw your arms out there to catch yourself and of course they take the brunt of the blow and I knew immediately that it was hurt. I kept hoping and praying that it wasn't bad and that it wasn't broken. And so I kept going, you know, it was, I had to go at least to mile seven before Suzanne, you know, and and my daughter were going to meet me there. And when I ran into that area, I was trying to hide it. You know, I was just keeping my arm down to my side and it was hurting, but it wasn't overbearing pain. I just thought, well, maybe I just pulled a muscle or something they recognized right off that something went right there. And so I told them that I'd fail and, you know, that it was hurting, but it wasn't too bad. And they said, well, do you need to stop? I said, no, I need to go a little further. So I ended up going about another 10 miles and then the pain got worse. And I thought, well, you better stop. But uh, it did turn out that it was broken. So I had to wear a sling and could not run for the next two months. And so I thought, well, how am I gonna train, you know, if I can't run? So I decided to start walking. And so I would go out for you know three and four hour walks at as fast a pace as I could walk. And I felt like, you know, really, I think that helped me at Moab, the walking did, because walking wears on your feet differently than running. And I think it toughened up my feet some for Moab because you do a lot of walking in a race like Moab or most people do, you know, there's a few guys that probably run the whole way, but most people end up doing a lot of walking as well as, you know, hiking and running. After about two months, you know, it healed up enough to where they would let me start running again. So then I, you know, I tried to increase the intensity at that point in time, knowing I was a little bit behind or felt like I was a little bit behind. So when you fell at Moab, you didn't cause any injuries. And that's just a huge blessing that early in the race. Well, I say it's early, but at this point, you're already 70 miles in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, fortunately, both of the times I fell, I was 
I, I tucked, you know, and rolled as opposed to throwing out my hands to catch myself, which is the normal reaction. And I think both times that is why I did not get injured because I, I, I fell the right way. If you're going to fall, at least try to fall that way as opposed to throwing your hands out to catch yourself because then they're going to take the brunt of your weight. And sometimes that doesn't turn out well. Yeah, it fall towards the mountain instead of towards the cliff. Yes. And there was some serious drop-offs. It's like, you know, you have to think about that and make sure that you're not putting yourself in any danger out there. And and if you stay right on the trail, you're not. You know, they, they don't want you to get hurt. They don't want anybody to get hurt. So it's safe. But there were some places that, you know, if you weren't 100% engaged, you could have gotten into some trouble. Well, Lee certainly has an interesting story to tell. We're going to break this up into two podcasts because there's a lot more to cover. But as always, we like to conclude our podcast with a scripture. And Bethany, you suggested this one, but I will read it. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Thanks for helping, Bethany. Thanks for having me. So the day that this podcast is being released is Shelby's birthday. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Shelby. Love you. Happy birthday, Shelby. At RYR Endurance Team, we specialize in customized coaching. What is customized coaching? It's more than a training plan. It's a relationship. It's a partnership. So what are your goals? What are you training for? Contact us at ryrcoach at gmail.com or visit us on our website, ryrenduranceteam.com. Hey, if you enjoy our podcast, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. This helps others find us. Thanks for listening.